But you can grab a seat, uh, and as you do, uh, I want you to check this out, but I didn't have my clicker on. It's and time for it some Father's Day fun. Every year at this time, I issue one of our now infamous YouTube challenges. In the past, we asked kids to squirt their dads with a hose. One year, we asked them to hop on Pop while he was sleeping in bed. We had uh, people, uh, children dump breakfast on their dad in bed. And this year, I asked you to serve your father breakfast in the shower while he was showering. Many of you answered the call. Always way more people than I expect do this stuff. We got a lot of responses. We went through all of them. We whittled them down to the best of the best. And now this is what happens when the children of America unite against the very person who gave them life. Hey, Dad. Hello. Happy Father's Day. Hello. Stop it. Dad, here, take it. (laughs) Take the breakfast. that I want to be, the one who takes the coffee in the shower. I mean, it's, it's impressive just to see people united for things like this, right? Jimmy Kimmel calls people together, cast this vision for terrorizing your parents or terrorizing your kids, just bringing terror to the world generally in a lot of different contexts. And, and maybe people always answer that call. And, and we see this, right, in our lives. We've seen people answer a call, maybe who catch sight of maybe a grander vision, a grander purpose, and they unite together to accomplish that task. We've seen it in group projects, right, sometimes miraculously, like we didn't think that Steve would be able to do anything worthwhile in that group project, and yet somehow pulls it out. Go, Steve. Or maybe it's with our roommates. Maybe it's you, you know, you realize that the house needs to be clean, and so you guys actually unite together. You come together uh, that one time, you know, like last year, I think, when you cleaned your home or apartment. Like, it was amazing, right? You loved it so much because you saw that happen. You saw that unity occur. You saw that shared vision, that shared purpose, that shared mission that all of you work towards together. And this is what's incredible about our gospel, that the fact that Jesus Christ came out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake, he did that not just to forgive us of our sins, not to just bring us back into relationship with God, not just to pull us out of being uh, children of wrath and instead adopting us into the family of the Lord, making us sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. That's not the extent of it. That's not the fullness of our gospel. Because on top of that, we have a purpose, which we've talked about in the past few weeks. We've talked about this purpose, this mission that we all share to build a community that worships God. Right, to bring other people in, to teach them what we've been taught, to, to baptize them, to proclaim to them the message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful is that we weren't just given that mission as a bunch of individuals. Instead, what we see in Scripture is this mandate, this very clear command that we are to move in this vision, to move in this purpose in community. It's something that we share because at the very core of our identities, we're Christians, right? We have this incredible unifying aspect of who we are. At the very foundational level of our identity, I am a believer. I am a Christian. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who I am. 
Now, for all of our identities, we stack other things on top of that, right? Our identities are generally layered. So maybe I'm a Christian first, but then I'm also a husband. And on top of that, I'm a, I'm a father. And on top of that, I'm the proudest fighting Texas Ag class of 2010. A or whoop or no A, I don't remember. Anyway, but I, I do have those things, right? And we have that kind of stuff. On top of that, I'm a, I work at Grace Bible Church. On top of that, I come to the evening service on occasion. Like I, we all have sorts of things like that, right? Where we know like, well, I'm in this degree program or I'm going to be an accountant. So, oh boy, you know, like we have those aspects. We have those types, those things in our identity. And yet at the very core foundational level, we're Christians. Or at least that's how it should be. Right? Because the truth is that a lot of times we find ourselves divided. We find ourselves struggling to work together for that shared purpose of building a community that worships the Lord. We find ourselves divided by lots of different stuff. By individual preferences, uh, by individual personalities, maybe by certain attitudes, maybe by certain backgrounds, maybe by certain uh, ethnicities. We find ourselves divided in so many different ways when we don't have to be. When we look at that very core foundational level, when I look at that very, just that base of what my identity is, I'm a believer. And that means I should be able to unite with anybody from any denomination, from any continent, anyone who shares in that identity of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we have that shared identity, we also have a shared purpose. To build a community that can bring others in. So how do we do that? How do we work together? How do we unite? How do we walk alongside of one another? How do we bring people for that shared purpose of calling others in, for casting a vision, of bringing people to worship the Lord that we know and love? Over the next few weeks, we're looking at the life of Nehemiah. uh, And we're looking at him uh, because he's an incredible story of essentially a person who caught that vision, a person who wanted to build community that would worship God. What we've seen over the past few weeks is that Nehemiah was a person who aligned first and foremost with God's heart, right? He loved what God loved, and his heart broke where the Lord's heart broke. And because of that, he wanted to align himself with the Lord's plan, with the Lord's purpose. And so he trusted last week that that, that God would position him correctly, that he would equip him correctly, that he would move through Nehemiah to build this community that would bring people to know the Lord. And what we'll see this evening is that Nehemiah was also a person who formed God's people, into a community, one that would eventually change their culture. What's so incredible about Nehemiah is he was a person who saw brokenness in, its, in his midst and chose to build right in the midst of that rubble. And that's someone we can be. That's someone I, I desperately want you to be. Someone who sees brokenness, who sees the needs, who sees the problems of your people and moves towards it. Right, again, last week we saw his alignment with the Lord's plan, how he trusted that God would use his plans to build community. But this evening what we're seeing specifically is Nehemiah's alignment with God's people. How he called people in, how he cast a vision out to them, and how they carried it out together. It's incredible. What we start off with is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. 
So if you'll remember from last week, he'd been kind of rounding everything up and he'd been kind of putting his plans in place. The, the king had asked him what was troubling him. And so he filled the king in. He's like, well, there's all these problems. And the king was like, what do you need? And so he says, well, I need, you know, this kind of permission and I need this uh, letter to this ruler so I can go through his land. I need to be able to go to this forest and gather these supplies. Nehemiah had put a plan into place. He'd been thinking for four months. He'd been praying and fasting and mourning for his people, asking God to use him somehow to, to move towards that need, to move towards that problem. So the moment finally arrived in the very beginning of chapter 2, which we read last week. And so now, verse 11 of chapter 2, we see him begin to carry out that plan. He says, I came to Jerusalem, and when I had been there for three days, I got up during the night along with a few men who were with me, but I did not tell anyone what my God was putting on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no animals with me except for the one I was riding. So I proceeded through the valley gate by night in the direction of the well of the dragons and the dung gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem that had been breached and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I passed under the gate of the well in the king's pool where there was not enough room for my animal to pass with me. And I continued up the valley during the night inspecting the wall and then I turned back and came to the valley gate and so returned. And so what we just saw was Nehemiah essentially just talking about himself going around the city and taking the status report, checking out the walls, seeing how everything is going. He goes from the valley gate to that gate, goes to the king's pool. Oh, skipping. Sorry. To the pool. Uh, he goes to what I think are the best paired names I've ever seen in my life. The Well of Dragons. Whoa, whoa awesome. And the Dungate. Uh, just, I wanted to be, I want to be in that staff meeting uh, where George gets fired because he, best he comes up with is dung. But uh, we see this movement of Nehemiah to check out essentially the problem of what was facing his people. Because what Nehemiah understood is that if he was going to move towards a solution, right? if he was going to move and be God's agent to bring healing and reconciliation to his people, he needed to understand, well, what exactly is the problem? Right? I, don't need, I don't need to just like see, get a passing glance. Of it. I don't need to have just like a, a working knowledge of what's going on. No, he needed to understand the need intimately. He needed to study it for himself. Because if we don't do that, right, if we don't take the time to really study and understand the problems in our midst, then we're never going to find a solution to them, as seen in this video. I almost... Uh, that's also the kind of father I want to be. The one who just laughs maniacally as my son gets decimated by arms of death. Uh, man, this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in that moment where maybe we see there's some sort of problem going on, and yet we don't take the time to just stop and study it, right? And stop and understand it. And if we don't do that, if we don't really take the time to really map out and understand the patterns of the spinning arms of inflatable death, then we will never stand a chance against it. So Nehemiah says, okay, I, I want to study the problem. I want to understand the need intimately. So we should be asking ourselves, well, what is the problem in our midst? This is what we prayed that God would reveal to us two weeks ago. That God would break your heart for the needs in your midst, for the problems of your people. What is it? I hope you've been continuing to pray for that. That God would soften your heart and show you, I mean, what are those needs? What are those problems? How can he use you? How has he positioned you? How has he equipped you to be his worker? What we talked about last week was, you know, the fact that a lot of us, maybe not all of us, 
But a lot of us have seen in our current culture, in our current college state, we've seen the effects of anxiety and depression tear people apart. Right? Just hard statistics, we found that 60% of students consider anxiety to be the major health concern. We found out that half of students, at least half of students, will seek counseling. At some point in their college career, they'll go to a professional counselor because they're, 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 they're feeling overwhelmed and burdened. Their top three reasons, anxiety, depression, and relationships. Time and time again, what we're seeing is that these people, your people, in your midst, are, are, are wrought with anxiety, with guilt, with, with depression, with these stresses on their lives. And, and I get it, right? There's a lot of stuff going on. Classes and work and relationships, all those things, man, they, they pile up and people feel so burdened that they just, they just assume there's no escape, which is why we saw that one out of ten, 10% of modern college students will attempt suicide, actually attempt it, not just consider, 10% of students will attempt suicide while in college. That's tragic. What's incredible is that in talking with some counselors here in town, one counselor was saying how he sees primarily Students, as his clients, dealing a lot with the anxiety and the depression. And what he found is that out of those clients, about 80% of them, he said four out of five, would never have to come back, never have to pay another dime, if they would simply be in in an environment, in a loving community of believers. If they just had that, they would never need to come back and see him. They just had a group of people who loved them, who listened to them, who talked to them, and yet, tragically, what we, again, talked about last week is that from some informal polls that we've conducted over the last few years, we found that about 3% of students in Bryan College Station, 3% of the 71,000 students at a College Station at Blinn and Bryan, 71,000 students, 3% of them are in Christian small or in a Christian small group, Christian community whether that's through a church, through a parachurch, through a student organization, 3%. And the, the problems in our midst are heavy and hard. The need is great. But what we have to understand is that the greatest need is not just the anxiety, it's not just the depression, it's not just the relational issues. The problem, ultimately, I mean, those things are symptoms, but the ultimate problem is that these people are finding themselves at a distance from God. <laughs> so that's right they are. Right? They, we see that these people have a distance between themselves and other people, but also between themselves and God. And that's what Nehemiah saw. Right? Ultimately, what he saw, the greatest need of his people, wasn't just the destruction in their midst, wasn't just the danger that they were in from uh, raiders and marauders. What the greatest, the, the greatest need that they had was to be in right relationship with God. That's why he wanted to rebuild the walls, so that they would be safe to worship God in his home, in his temple. That's why he wants the walls to be there. Not just so that they can like chill out and, and take a break and watch some Israel flicks. Like He wants them to be able to worship the Lord, to bridge that gap, to close that distance between themselves and God. And it's the exact same need that we see in our midst right now. A great need that 97% of the people around us have. Once Nehemiah understood that, he recognized, you know, I can't just do this on my own. So once he understood the problem, he was ready to gather people. 
Verse 16 says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had been doing, for up to this point I had not told any of the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or the rest of the workers. Right, so Nehemiah is about to address these people, right? We'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But essentially what I want us to do is just pause and look at who was actually gathered around him. Who had come alongside of, of Nehemiah in this endeavor? And it's really impressive, right? He's got a lot of people who are Jews, right? That makes sense. It's their kind of capital cities, their nation states where they, you know, came from. Uh, but they're not all Jews, right? There's a lot of those workers. Uh, they are Gentiles. In other words, non Jews. He says, but there are Jews in my midst. There's priests, there's nobles, there's officials, there's just workers. In other words, there's blue collar, there's white collar, there's this ethnicity, there's that ethnicity. There's people from this background, that background, this persuasion, that persuasion, this attitude, this, that attitude. He's got people from all walks of life. And they've all come together for the shared purpose of building a community that would worship the Lord. That's what they're all there for. This is incredible. This is amazing. That Nehemiah would find all of these people who were fit for the task at hand. So what made them the right people, right? Well, how did he know who to select? How did he know who to bring alongside of himself? And what we see, kind of the, the principle that we see throughout, not just in this verse, but we'll see kind of as the chapter progresses, is that these were people who had two important factors in their lives. First, they were available for the work. And second, they were equipped for it. Right now, this is something that guides a lot of our stories and our tales, like any heroic uh, movie or, or, or story that we tell. It, it centers on people, on heroes uh, who are both available and equipped. Right? We love. I love watching the Star Wars movies. Uh, the newer one, you, you see uh, in Ray, right, one of the new heroes of the of the franchise. She is first and foremost available. Right, she's just hanging out on like desert place and she's just sort of chilling you know she's not really doing much she's looking for scrap she's making bread out of water which is pretty cool but she you know for the most part very very available so when she gets called to action it's like oh that's great and, and she jumps in and then we find out that she's equipped for the work at hand right she's like super good at just everything she can fly ships uh she can use the force stuff like she makes again she makes bread out of water that's like that's really great. Like, that's pretty, we, you know, don't just like rush past that. And so she's good at all of these different things. We love watching uh, the tales or reading the tales of people like Harry Potter, right? Who was available first and foremost, right? He's just chilling on the stairs, like, no one's celebrating his birthday, whatever. And so he gets to go to Hogwarts. He makes himself available. But then we find out that him and all of his friends, they're all like amazing at everything, right? Like, they're all very, very equipped for the work at hand, for the, for the adventures at hand. Every once in a while, you're like, I don't know, are they? Ah! And then you turn to the next chapter, and you're like, oh, they are. Oh, like, and it's, it's close. It's good, right? We love seeing people that are available and equipped. We love watching the Avengers because they weren't just available when Samuel Jackson was like, you got to come to the Avengers. And they're like, all right, cool. And, but we also see them equipped for the task at hand, right? Except for Hawkeye. Yeah. But the rest of them, they're like, they have actual skills and can do stuff, right? We don't want to just watch someone who has one and not the other. We don't want to watch the Avengers and Carl because Carl is just like available. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I can come. Or whatever, right? Like, we don't want to watch that happen. I mean, actually, I kind of do. I do a little bit. I'm going to email uh, Marvel. But that's something that generally we don't, right? Generally, we don't see that as like a compelling tale. We want to see people who are available and equipped for the task at hand. And that's who these people were. The people that Nehemiah surrounded himself with, the people that he called alongside of himself, were available and equipped. Now, these people were ultimately the right ones. Why? Just because they had these incredible gifts that, wow, it just so happens that I was, just so happens I was equipped? No. 
as we discussed a little bit last week, these people were available and equipped because they were God's people. Because God was faithful to position them to be, to be available. Because God was faithful to equip them for his purpose. That's the trick. For a lot of us, I mean, we maybe wonder and, and worry that, well, what if, what if I'm not in the right position? What if I'm not equipped well? And we talked about this last week where, where we, we can see in Nehemiah what we see through a lot of Scripture. That we can trust that God is at work, even when we don't see it. We can trust that God has positioned us to build, that he's, He will equip us to build, that we should at least just be open to it. That's all He asks. We would be open to His lead, to His guide, to His power. Because that's what we've been promised through the Holy Spirit. For any believer who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're given the Holy Spirit, not just as a down payment, a, a guarantee of the life to come, a guarantee of the eternal life you'll have after this world is done away with, but that Holy Spirit has a ministry for God's people, for the church, right here, right now. As our counselor, as our guide, as our empower, as our encourager. The Holy Spirit, God has promised to use the Holy Spirit to work through us, to bear fruit in our lives, to use us for His purpose. If we're just open to it. God has promised that He will make us available. He will equip us for that task. What's beautiful about Nehemiah is he doesn't just gather those people and say, all right, so go do it. Instead, he brings them alongside and he says, follow me as we do this. Come with me as we accomplish this task, as we go on this mission. It's the difference between telling someone to, to join you or to just go ahead and jump on ahead. Right? This is something that we've seen in, in good leaders throughout history. The best leaders are always the ones that lead from the front, that call people to follow rather than push them from behind. There's a certain commander uh, who was in the U.S. military. His name was Norman D. Coda. Right? Now, he uh, had a wonderful career, very distinguished uh, officer. But one of the kind of his big moments, one of the times that people really remember him, uh, especially, was his uh, involvement in D-Day. Right? D-Day was when the Allies were like, Germany, give us France back. And Germany's like, no. And they're like, Muh. And so we sent all these boats. They landed on France. And so they're like, all right, we're going to take all this stuff and, you know, whatever. So anyway, so they got into this battle. Uh, Normandy Cutter was there, seen here, uh, looking like your angry grandfather. But he led these men. What he, what he discovered was that as they were trying to pr- push onto this beach, uh, all these Germans were shooting back at him, right? That's classic Nazis. And so they're shooting machine guns at, at the Allies as they're trying to encroach on this beach. On this beach. And so uh, all the Allies started to like hunker down. They're getting scared. They're, they're like trying to hide behind cover. And, but they got to press forward. They got to. Because there's no going back, right? There's just water behind them. So Norman D. Cotus, he's a group of his men. He walks up to him and he delivers this incredibly inspiring line. He says, gentlemen, we're being killed on the beaches. Let's go inland and be killed. And it worked somehow. I don't know how. I think I would just be really sad and send him a, give him a bad report card or whatever that is, customer service response. But he actually inspired these guys. They all, they, they pushed forward. Sure enough, they, they overtook some machine gun nests. They, they made really wonderful progress on the beach that day. They, you know, chilled out for the night, got some sleep. Uh, and then the very next morning, as they started to push further inland, uh, what they were finding was that the Germans were holding up in like houses and barns and all these different things. And so uh, they would have to go like house by house, town by town, flushing out these Nazis. And Norman Dakota, though, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time to waste. I mean, look at him. 
that guy, that guy's on a mission at all times. And so he walks up on a group of soldiers that are surrounding a, a farmhouse, and, but nothing's really going on. They're just kind of all like hiding behind a wall, like looking at it. He's like, what's going on? They tell him, well, uh, there are uh, Germans in there shooting at us. Right? So Normandy Coda's like, okay, uh, well, here's, here's the thing. Says, and I quote again, well, I'll tell you what, Captain. You and your men, you start shooting at them, and I'll take a squad of men, and you and your men watch carefully, and I'll show you how to take a house with Germans in it. Right? Which is great. If that was like the title of a YouTube channel, I would watch that all day. Show you how to take a house with Germans in it. And so he got all these people to surround the house. They took grenades. They tossed them through the windows. But Norman thought, windows, no. That's for the boys. I'm a man. And so he walked up to the front door of the house, kicked it open, and threw a grenade inside. And at this point, I mean, the grenades were going off. But I'd like to imagine that it was mainly just Norman standing in the front door of this house, having just kicked it open. All the Germans surrendered. They were all like, okay, nope, we're done. Norman's here. It's over. And so they surrendered. Uh, and at that point, the captain was just really impressed. And so Norman went and talked to him. He's like, look, you've seen how to take a house. Do you understand? Do you know how to do it now? Uh, to which the captain said, yes, sir. Uh, I'm assuming he's writing it all down, like in his, you know, Vera Bradley notebook or whatever he had. And then Norman says, again, and I'd like to imagine he's sort of saying this while walking away and like dropping a microphone. He says, well, I won't be around to do it for you again. I can't do it for everybody. And by it, I mean, he means like kick open the door of a house and throw a grenade and kill Nazis. This is a real person, okay? This is a real person who really existed. Never forget that. Live your life knowing that this happened. So we see in people like Norman, we see in people like maybe a good professor you've had, maybe a wonderful team leader you've had, a good boss you've had. We see people that are worth following because they are unafraid to go about uh, pressing forward. They're the ones that blaze the trail. And Nehemiah does this. He pushes forward on his own. He says, I want you to come alongside of me. Join me in this mission. Join me in this purpose. So my question, our question should be, well, who are our people? Who can we call alongside of ourselves? Who's available, first and foremost? Who's available? Who's already maybe a part of your community? Maybe you already live with them. You're already roommates. Or maybe you're already in the same small group. Maybe you're already in the same lab group or, or work, whatever it is. Who's already available? Who's already in your midst that could join you in this endeavor to build community that would worship the Lord? And then who's equipped? Right? And again, maybe this isn't someone who's just like super duper awesome at everything or, you know, that's, they don't have to be like super extroverted or super bubbly personality, social butterfly or anything like that. It can just be someone who is at least open to the Lord using them to build a community. Who's someone who maybe shares your vision, shares your purpose already. Someone who wants to, to work alongside of you, to just have that movie night or that dinner or, or whatever it is, whatever small gathering it might be to, to kind of kick off those relationships, to build community that would ultimately, hopefully one day, worship the Lord. Who's that person? You might be sitting next to you right now. You might be back home. Where are they at? Who are the people that you can join, that can join alongside of you? Because once those people are there, once you have those people lined up, what Nehemiah did after he had those people lined up was that he laid out the problem for them and he shaped their perspective. He says in verse 17, I said to them, you see the problem that we have. Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned. Come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that this reproach will not continue. 
He starts off just by laying out the problem. He says, look, this is, the, this is the issue at hand. This is the need that we're facing. This is the problem in our midst. Jerusalem is desolate. Gates burned. Wall down. We've got to fix this. In other words, he's very quickly basically walking them through his process. He's showing them what he's already seen. He's hoping and praying that the Lord would be breaking their hearts just as his broke when looking at the problem that their people are facing. He says, this is what's happening. So we need to move. We need to act. But don't worry, because I related to them how the good hand of my God was on me, what the king had said to me. And so then they replied, let's begin rebuilding right away. So they ready themselves for this good project. So Nehemiah lays out the problem. He, he shows them the need in their midst. He calls them to action, but yet he still reminds them that God's in control but the good hand of my God was on me. See, what Nehemiah does is he lays out that tension that believers have always struggled with, always have, always are, always will struggle with. That tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Right? Meaning, what we do matters, and yet God's in control. This is a tension that, that we'll always struggle with. It's one that we see in Nehemiah, it's what we see throughout a lot of Scripture. One of my favorite examples is you look in Acts chapter 2, uh, the moment of Pentecost, all these Jews are gathered uh, in Jerusalem, they're all hanging out, and Peter, the Apostle Peter, stands up before this crowd. Uh, he's seen the risen Christ. He, he's being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so he stands up in front of all these gathered Jews, and he starts preaching at them. The very first sermon delivered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Stands up, starts preaching at them. He says, look, says, God always planned that Jesus Christ would die as a sacrifice. So that it was, it was preordained, it was, it was foretold. Uh, Jesus Christ was always going to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to, to pay the penalty of our sins, to, to, to pay the penalty and, and die that death that we deserve so that we might have life. He says, that was always the plan. God put that into motion before eternity even began. It says, and yet, you are the people who killed them. And what you've done is an evil thing. Jesus Christ was always going to be the perfect sacrifice, but you killed him. And that was a horrible thing to do. That was an evil action that you took. God's in control, but what you do matters. How do we resolve that tension? I don't know. I don't know. But we know they're true. That's the best we can do, is that we can know and trust that they are both true. So Nehemiah looks at these people, he says, you know what? We need to do something. We need to build. We need to move. We need to act. Recognize that God's in control. We're not supposed to just sit and watch the Lord build the wall, Tetris style, with falling bricks from heaven. That would be awesome. That's not what God wanted to do. God chose to use their work. He chose to use their hands, their bricks, their mortar. God has chosen to use Nehemiah's plan. God wants to use your plans to build community. God worship Him. God wants to use our work to accomplish His purposes. And see, this was crucial for Nehemiah to lay out. Not just because they're going to have times 
uh, next week that we're going to see where, there, where problems arise, where obstacles arise, and so you need to have something to hold on to in the midst of that storm, something to hold fast to. But it's also important, not just for that, but also for the sake of just knowing why am I doing this? He's telling me, look, ultimately this is God's hand at work. This is God moving us to this point. Because ultimately, man, people need to answer why before they'll ever ask how. This is something that's always been true. People need to understand the purpose of what they're going to do. They need to know the purpose before they want to know the plan. They need to answer why before they'll ask how. This is a, a, an idea, a principle laid out really wonderfully by a French author. Uh, I checked the morning service if anyone knew how to pronounce his name because I, I really tried looking it up and I could not find a pronunciation anywhere. Does anyone happen to know how to pronounce this guy's name? Does anyone like know French? Or like, is anyone like half Canadian? And you're just like, it's in your blood? Okay, great. Well, we'll continue to just live in ignorance, I guess. I called him Antoine. I think that's how you say that, Antoine. So Antoine... Uh, the Said Asfouali. That's what I'm gonna say. Uh, he uh, he told us. He wrote uh, famously. He says, "If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men together. Would divide the work and give orders." He says, "Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea." Beautiful, beautiful. If you want people to move towards a purpose, if you want people to move towards a problem or address a need or go on a mission. You don't start off with a bunch of details and laying out this plan like this and that, and you go there and you do that. What do you do? You answer why. You answer why before you ever explain how. Nehemiah says, this is what we are called to do by the Lord. I can't say it enough, but this is what we are called to do by the Lord, to build a community that worships him. When Jesus Christ was leaving his disciples, says, I want you to go to all people, all nations. Preach to them what I taught you. Baptize them. Make them disciples of me. But we need to have plans. right? We don't just go out with really great intentions and yet no organization. Instead, what we do is we have these people. What Nehemiah did is he has these people. He brings them together. He, he, he shapes their perspective, gives them that vision answers the why, but then he gives them a plan. He gives them a how. In chapter 3, we're not going to read it because it's super long and very dull. And he essentially, what you see is his plan carried out where all these men, all these women, all these people, these nobles, these, these rulers, these priests, these, these workers, these Jews, these Gentiles, these white collar, these blue collar, all these people come together and they start to carry out this plan. They, they, they're like, hey, we're going to take this gate and we're going to take that part and we're going to take this section. And they all divide up and they start to build this wall. And it's all because of a plan that Nehemiah had put in place before and that he had thought through, that he had been intentional to develop. He gave them a plan that was reasonable and that was attainable so they could actually do it. He wasn't like, hey, we're going to build this wall a thousand feet high. What? Like he wanted it to be something that was reasonable. Man, this is what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. If you've been here, you'll know I'm going to be beating a drum that I've already been beating that, that we can do this, that we can actually put into place an attainable, reasonable goal, a plan to have some sort of moment. Right, as we were talking as a staff, what we landed on was just the last week of April. It's kind of right before, it's almost the calm before the storm of finals. We're hoping that last week of April, you'd be able to find a time 
carve out just an hour or a couple hours or one evening or one morning, whatever it is, a little bit of time to bring people together for the sake of building community. That last week of April starts next Sunday, ends the next. You can be flexible if you want to move around, but sometime in that general time frame, have some moment where you bring people together to build community. And it doesn't have to be anything intense. It doesn't have to be a moment where you like bring them in and you talk about sin and you watch the passion of the Christ and you say, well, <laughs> how about it? You know, like that's not, that's not what it has to be. It can simply be a moment where you come together and you watch a movie together, just like a bad movie that you make fun of together. It can be a time where you get them together for a meal. It can be a time where you get together and play a sport, where you play a board game, where you, where you do some activity, where you make some cookies. It can be anything. And, and you can do it with your friends, right? You can be with a community that you already know. You're just bringing outsiders into it for the first time. Or maybe people that maybe you have a sort of a fringe relationship with. You can strengthen that, right? And maybe that's a little scary. Maybe like, well, I don't know. My lab partner's never met my roommates. And what if they come together and, oh, it's over. You know, like, what, what would happen? It's okay. It's okay. We can do that. We can allow those worlds to collide. And it will be all right. What's that moment that you can find that last week of April to bring people together to build community? And what we're seeing is that, you know, we're not supposed to do this on our own. I don't want us, I don't want us to all go do, you know, there's like 60 of us here right now. I, want us to, I don't want us to go do 60 different things. We need to be working alongside of friends, of roommates, of other people. And, and what we've done is we've created a few just simple options for you. Right, Michael and Alyssa are wonderful evening fellows. They're going to come up here and they're going to explain theirs. But, but essentially what this is, is we have just a couple options uh, that we can tell you about. Uh, they don't have to be a part, you don't have to be a part of it. You, there are lots of other things you can do. I, I'm hoping that most of us kind of have our own plan or our own thing that we're passionate about. But for those of us that maybe we're bad at thinking of ideas or like we just never have fun, I'm sorry <laughs> that's your life, but maybe that's you. We want to have just a couple opportunities. We want to be just as Nehemiah stepped out and said, hey, come alongside. We want to give you some of those options. So I don't remember what order I put them in. Oh, Michael's oh, first. Okay. All right. So who here likes to play Ultimate Frisbee? Oh. Yeah. All right. So the rest of you who don't like to have fun, apparently, you can, can learn. come along too. You can learn how to play. On Tuesday, April 26th, we are going to be right over here at this field. If you are here, you've seen it. So it's right there, Anderson Field. We are going to be at Anderson Park playing Ultimate Frisbee. Come out, and it's just as simple as that. And, and for those of you who can't make it to that, you can just have an event as simple as just hanging out with some people. So we're going to be there. Then invite anyone you know who likes to be outside or those who just like to be inside. Tell them, hey, it's nice out here. Or just like cheer. You should come. You yeah, cheer, and, yeah, and, and people can just chill and hang out. Like We'll have water available. Everyone oh. can just enjoy themselves. It'll be fun. For free? Or? For free. Whoa, all right, all right. There'll be water. So. Well, and if you're not up, if you're not up for some frisbees, oh! <laughs> but you're up for spoons well, yeah. and froyo. Okay, who likes froyo? Who would eat it every day if they had the budget? Yes. Um, so we figure, what better than right after evening service? I don't know about y'all, but after every evening service, it seems like, hey, I really could use some froyo. And Spoons has a hooked app. Spoons is on the hooked app. And it's like a dollar and a half off every Sunday night. So, hey, it's an awesome opportunity. So, hey, invite someone to the evening service and then let them go to Spoons. Or if it's just like, eh, I don't do that yet. Hey, I'm going to Spoons at Sunday night. And just um, invite friends to come and have yogurt and 
Yeah, it's awesome. So we're looking at doing that next week. So after this service next week, head over to Spoons and hang out with friends. Awesome. Thank you. Super easy. See? And it can be just that simple. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's one of those things that you want to come and be a part of. Maybe you're like, you know what? Spoons is a good idea. But you know what? Sundays, not not my dairy day. Like dairy's only reserved for Wednesday. So go on Wednesday. That's great. Like whatever time works for you. Like think of just what is the simple thing. Again, it can be an hour. It can be two hours. It can be just a little slice of your week that you're intentionally setting aside to build community, to bring someone in, to bring in that friend or that workmate or that lab partner, whoever it is, that you could just start to strengthen your relationship, start to build that relationship. Again, maybe you have to push pause on that relationship over the summer. That's okay. I promise that's okay. Don't let that stop you from seeking, starting to initiate with that person now. You never know. You're really surprised. So what is that time, what is that moment, that final week of April, where you can join with other people in building that community? Who is it that you can bring alongside of you who also understands the problem? Who can you gather together who, who shares your perspective, or whose perspective you can at least shape? Who can you join it with to create some sort of plan? Bring people together to build community. And I would encourage you through all of it, please, 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 be praying for these people. Be praying for the needs of our world. Be praying for the problems that the people are facing in our midst, that we're facing in our daily lives. And we actually have a, a wonderful opportunity kicking off tonight or like in an hour or something. Starting today, what we have is a thing that we've done year after year after year uh, called 24-7 Prayer. And, and it's a time where uh, if you went and peeked inside that room right there, it's closed off with the virus. If, you'd pe- if you peeked inside it right now, you would see it's been like transformed. There's like maps and pillows and I don't know, other stuff. That makes it sound really weird, but it's really cool. Not just maps and pillows. That's just part of it, right? But there are things in there that help kind of, that kind of spark your mind as to what are needs, what are prayer needs in our midst? What are nations we can be praying for? Not just America. There are, other world, there are other nations in our world. Some of them speak French. Oh my gosh. We can pray for them. Who are the people we can be praying for that we know personally, that other friends know personally, the family members of other people, the loved ones of other people, loved ones of our own? Like, Who can we be praying for? What needs can we be praying that God would move towards and bring resolution to? Right? And hopefully this is something that we do in our, in our lives on a regular basis. But many times we forget, so I would encourage you, as this process is unfolding, as you're planning and and preparing, and as you're bringing people in, always be praying. And this 24-7 thing, wonderful opportunity to really intentionally set aside an hour. You just, you sign up, Drew is here, you can just, I don't know how they do it, Drew, but you can tell them, and Drew, you just talk to Drew, and he will, he'll get you in. And he'll figure out this is a slot, this is an hour slot, or two hours, or you can do uh, you know, some on this day and some on that day, or you can just do one hour on that day, whatever it is. It's an incredible opportunity for you to set aside that time to be praying that the Lord would move. Because ultimately, all of our plans, all of our processes, all of our gifting, all of our wonderful aspirations are nothing unless the Lord is working through them. So let's pray that God would do so. Let's pray right now. Lord, we, we thank you that you have put needs in front of us, that, Lord, that we're not just forced to sit and stare at, but that, Lord, there are needs that you've chosen to use us to move towards. Lord, what an incredible opportunity 
that we might be your workers, or that we might be your instruments in your perfect plan of redemption. If you would take a moment right now, just ask the Lord to, to bring to mind not just who you can invite into community, not just the person that hopefully the Lord has been breaking your heart to move towards, to, to initiate a conversation with, to invite to, to a function, to a, to a movie, to a dinner, to a, a game. Ask the Lord to bring that person to mind, but also ask that God would raise up a friend, a coworker, a roommate, someone who you can partner with in this endeavor. Ask the Lord to bring both of those people to your mind. And ask that the Lord would start to use your plans now to initiate that conversation, to start that relationship, or maybe just to strengthen a relationship that would one day lead to that conversation where the Holy Spirit can move and convict them of their sin, can bring them to repentance, can bring them to relationship with God himself. Ask the Lord to bring those people to mind right now.